Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome everybody into the Nature Blind School podcast. This has, without a doubt, been one of the most sobering conversations I've ever had with anyone about the topic of disaster readiness. So if you're listening to us here on the podcast, jump into our Nature Blind School membership, our online school. We have a course inside there called Vital Survival. Inside that course are several videos, a book, a handbook, a long-term water and food storage guide, and everything you need to do to get you and yourself and those that you care about ready for natural and man-made disasters. We would love to have you join there. That's the the genesis, if you will, of where this conversation with Stephen started is developing that coursework for both rural and urban environments. And again, it's one of the most sobering conversations I've had in a long time. Just please, whatever you do, listen to this conversation and then do something about the information that you hear in it after you get done listening to it. Don't let it just be information that you digest and do nothing about. Do something about it. As always with Nature Line School, come on, join in. Let's learn together. Steven, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Great to be here. Yeah, it's real good to have you. We've been working on some stuff for quite a while now. It's good to get you on here so we can talk about some of that stuff. Yes, sir. If you don't care for our listeners and viewers, can you go ahead and tell us more about your background and what have you? Because I'll have links for everybody that's listening and watching. I'll have links as well. But if you don't care, go ahead and tell us about it. Sure. Um, I think for the context of, of this uh, today, I've got um, uh, a few things to share. And we've got uh, my current role is as vice chair for InfraGuard's National Disaster Resilience Council. That's a volunteer role. The uh, National Disaster Resilience Council or NDRC is a cross-sector council uh, for InfraGuard. InfraGuard is um, a public-private partnership between the FBI and private sector, uh, originally founded to focus on um, cybersecurity. We currently have over 70 chapters around the country, um, and, um, approximately 80,000 members. A lot of those members are passive. Uh, and, and then the uh, due to InfraGuard's size, we've been able to organize as well into uh, the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. We have sector chiefs. And then uh, we have a few cross-sector councils 
that span those councils at the national level and the NDRC is one of those. And the NDRC focuses on black sky events and by black sky, we mean a nationwide uh, or North American continent-wide power outage that would be 30 days or longer in duration. And how long have you been working on what we're going to call black sky events? I've been working on it for pushing 10 years, really. Oh, wow. And, nice. And even, even before uh, my time at InfraGuard. So before my time at InfraGuard, and what, what helped steer me here, uh, I was a, a reservist in the Marine Corps. I was a logistics officer. And then I also got into um, IT and command and control systems as a reservist. Uh, I've spent time as a contractor with the FBI a couple years at their data main data center in West Virginia, uh, working on um, program governance. And then um, uh, I spent time with uh, headquarters army as a contractor. Um, they recruited me uh, because I had this, this mishmash background that I was reservist plus active duty. So I understood military operations. And I also spent 15 years in the um, uh, environmental uh, characterization and contamination cleanup business. So I understood mm. um, and was trained and certified. I understood um, complex contaminated sites and how to characterize them and remediate them and all the decontamination procedures you've got to go through and controlling the hot site, the hot zone, et cetera, um, exit, uh, exiting the site and disposing of uh, proper materials. And I, I've worked on um, contaminated sites that ranged from abandoned factories that had all kinds of solvents and heavy metals to low-level radioactive sites, uh, nuclear, nuclear power plants. Um, and, uh, and so that background, uh, when they, they recruited me for this role, um, all came together um, uh, because they were concerned about uh, how to respond to nuclear weapon detonation in the United States, not from uh, ICBMs coming from outer space, but from smuggled nukes that would be uh, detonated on the ground, and the Army has a role to support, um, you know, through through a Northcom, they've got a role to support response and recovery from those kind of events. So that that work um, uh, to me at the time was very very uh, sobering and depressing, and um, uh, I led a solutions architecture team uh, that looked at the operations uh, plus the. Um, uh, the characterization of the extent of, the, of those kinds of uh, scenarios and learn that, you know, the federal government does reach a point where it's maxed out and they can only handle so many cities that have been uh, attacked in that manner. And then we, we just run out of army. We run out of Marine Corps. We run out of NGOs. We run out of the EPA. We, we just run out of things. So um, I, you know, that was a wake up call for me. And then um, I was recruited into the India or into InfraGuard um, uh, with that background. And when I learned about the NDRC and its predecessor was the Electromagnetic Pulse Special Interest Group, um, uh, I just started volunteering. And uh, when I, once I understood the effect of electromagnetic pulse and black sky events on the country, it, it, it made uh, the, the nuclear uh, weapon stuff I worked on seem small. So, so from a perspective, a radiological event versus a general black sky event, whatever causes it, you see that as being a more likely situation than just a um, smuggled in nuclear device. Is that, would you, am I saying that correctly? You know, it's um, we, one of our conferences, we, I got to talk and have a coffee with um, 
uh, James uh, Woolsey, the former CIA director, and I asked him, you know, what's more likely? And he said, you know, when you start talking about likely, that's statistical and predictive, and you can only do statistics and predictivity when you've got a data set to work with. So when we have right. these these anomalous events, like like who could predict Adolf Hitler based on, was he likely? Um, you can't predict him or Stalin using statistics. But what he did share with me was th the fact that those people do emerge, uh, you know, that do things like that. So which which event would be more likely? You know, what's more likely? Uh, uh, a small nuclear weapon being smuggled over our border and in a flower delivery or a pizza delivery truck and detonated at ground level in Houston or DC or New York city, or, um, one of our adversaries, uh, attempting a, uh, uh, an electromagnetic pulse attack where we couldn't tell who it was. So it really depends on world events and, and the, those competing interests and, and how they may, you know, which of those bad actors may, may, um, may try to apply those. So with, with the, the nuclear scenario, the reason that's a lesser event is because it's not going to wreck the country. You'd still have parts of the country that could help other parts of the country. So mm -hmm. while those scenarios are very uh, sobering and saddening, um, you know, with a, a small nuclear weapon detonated on the ground, what really kills people is not the blast, it's the fallout. So you have, if you, if you, if you target a city where the, enormous fallout plume will then blow onto other cities. You can get many birds with one stone. So you can kind of target where the fallout is going to hit a lot of population centers. You can, you can kill hundreds of thousands of people and poison many more and create just economic and life havoc downwind of that, that location. You know, if you only need to do three or five of those across the country in major metropolitan areas, that would be enormously disruptive, but the rest of the country is still here to help. Uh, or to flee to. If you have a black sky event, which could be caused by a cybersecurity uh, incident, it could be caused by a geomagnetic disturbance from the sun that could create excess voltages and drop our grid, or it could be an intentional man-made event through electromagnetic pulse weapons detonated high up at the edge of the atmosphere. Um, then we're looking at um, the power going down, you know, coast to coast, uh, for at least 30 days and, and longer. And, and the big consequence there is the effect on the supply chain the, or the, the supply chain's availability. So to repair and replace the equipment that is damaged by that electromagnetic event is just not going to be a simple thing. Just, just only take the transformers that we have in all the substations around the country. And the current, you know, the current manufacturing capacity globally is designed to meet market conditions. So they're just making enough to keep up with the market. They're not creating thousands of them in stockpiles. We're going to need thousands of them. And they're, it's just not going to, they're not going to be available. So, you know, if we can't get the power turned back on <clears throat> quickly enough, um, then we'll, how do we restart our economy? Just look at what the pandemic did to supply chain issues. We're talking about a cessation of supply chain uh, post uh, EMP event or electromagnetic pulse event. And, um, and how things would grind to a halt at that time. So it sounds like um, this is this has been a conservative effort for ten years by yourself and many other players. And one of the things that came out of this was the book "Powering Through Fragile Infrastructure to Community." Um, do you so want to talk about that and how, yeah, we, that, how that work played out and who you worked with and all that sort of stuff? 
Sure. That was a collaborative effort. I was a contributing author and uh, one of three editors with Mary Lasky and, and Bill Harris. Uh, that book was published in 2016, and we did focus on the triple threat of um, cyber, solar weather, and high-altitude electromagnetic pulse, or HEMP, hemp. And uh, our, our hope with that book was to just publish something that would create awareness and focus on the topic. And the genesis of the idea was we, some of our members have been writing articles and we thought, why don't we originally let's create a collection of articles in each chapter. And then we hmm. said, well, let's, let's publish a book. And, uh, and so we published it. It's available on, on Amazon and there's a 2021 edition as well, also called Powering Through. That's a companion volume. It's not a sequel or anything. The, the both books stand on their own. I recommend that your 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 listeners and viewers uh, get those books. They, they yeah, really, I'll have you, uh, I'll have links for everybody that's listening in. I'll have links wherever you're listening or viewing this video. Super. Um, once you go through a book like those books, um, it sets the table uh, and the logic so that the the concept of black sky event becomes, um, believe, you know, completely believable. And one thing, I think about, that's where we are. Books, yeah. I think that's where yeah. we are. I think a lot of people see, for example, black sky events as a, you know, prepper type of craziness. And, and I'm not saying I wasn't there five years ago myself, but after working yeah. with you all, uh, it's become apparent that this is not only possible, but likely and we need to get people ready for it. We do. And uh, if you just look at world events and look at how, for example, one potential adversary, Russia, is waging war in the Ukraine. They're not doing it in, by the rules of war. They're, 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 you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a smash and burn campaign where they're using lots. They're using what they can to destroy infrastructure. They're waging an infrastructure war against the Ukraine uh, in order to, um, weaken them so they can get their boots on the ground where they want them. And, you know, they, if doesn't, I don't think anybody that any of your listeners would be surprised to, to hear that Russia has been launching lots of missiles uh, against the, the Ukrainian electrical infrastructure, which there was built uh, by the Soviet Union to withstand uh, a global nuclear war. The reason the Ukraine has been able to take the hits from Russia is because their system was overbuilt. They were designed hmm. to, to push power into the Soviet Union, so they have excess capacity. I, I don't want to say exactly how much, but it's it's substantive. So they had a huge buffer that they could afford to uh, have destroyed and still power themselves. They just lost their ability to export, by and large. The In the United States, our power grid is, is kind of a just-in-time, um, just enough there. And, you know, we've all seen the news where down in Texas or California, there have been warnings, don't charge your cars at 5 p.m. or if you have an electric vehicle because it'll put too much on the grid because everybody's running their air conditioner. So, we, you know, our model has just grown as needed. It wasn't centrally planned. It just meets the need plus a little. And so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to balance our electric grid, and we don't have the, the buffer that, say, Ukraine has. Also, the Ukrainian grid is... Um, I'd say less electronic than ours, so it's it's more manual. So it's hmm. it's more resilient to the cyber attack attempts that Russia has thrown at it. Where our grid, uh, you know, has we we know and DHS released this I think in 20, 2019, I believe. Um, 
the, we found evidence that the Russian hackers got inside a nuclear power control station and were able to manipulate the, uh, the operations of that, of that nuclear facility and left screenshots as, as evidence or breadcrumbs. So mm. we, we know that if they can do that, they, why didn't they do it? That's the real question with this is our, you know, can China do it? Can North Korea do it? Or if our adversaries are that skilled, we've seen them shut down pipelines, et cetera, um, through ransomware, uh, then what, you know, what, why haven't they in it? So they just haven't made the choice to do it. Doesn't mean that they, they lack the capacity. Right. So how did the, how did the work on your work on the book and the other authors that worked with you, how did that, uh, change your viewpoint and what it is that you're trying to do through InfraGuard and your other work? We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. I think it really brought it into focus. I mean, when I first learned about the topic, um, of course, I, I, I was shocked. Um, so, you know, we go through the, kind of the analogy of the five stages of grief and acceptance. So, you know, you have the death of a loved one, divorce, whatever. Um, and those, those stages are, are, are number one, disbelief. Um, and these are in no particular sequence uh, all the time. Disbelief. And then um, uh, I've got my disbelief. Uh, um, Denial, you know, bargaining, this can't be happening to me once you believe it happened. And then uh, sadness, um, then uh, uh, an anger about it, and then acceptance. So, you know, you've got to walk through those stages with any kind of shocking realization. And I went through them when I started, when I understood what the CMP or black sky scenario could be. Um, and I live in North Carolina, and uh, I was able to get involved with the state of North Carolina when they were developing their EMP annex to the state emergency plan, which they don't is not available to the public. But I participated in the working groups that developed that. And at that time, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest initiated that effort. And we had participation from both on the state side, the regulators of the various um, um, uh, infrastructures, as well as uh, industry participation. And, you know, it was, it was not a, some of the meetings were pretty contentious. There were a lot of opinions there, but mm. um, we, what we, what I, so I learned a lot of the, as far as the pragmatics and the timing of how things, the cascading failures um, would happen because of our, our infrastructure interdependencies. You know, once you lose grid power, I never knew before then that nuclear power plants can't function without grid power. They, yeah, or you've got to throw them on emergency generators. The nuclear power station does not power itself, and that's supposed to be a safety feature. So they hmm. get power from the grid. Even if they lose power, they can still have enough electricity, you know, to do a safe shutdown. If the grid power goes down, then the light basically the, 
emergency gener diesel generators come on so they can run their control room and they can still control the nuclear power station. But that electricity coming out of that power plant doesn't power their ability to, doesn't allow them to, to power their control room. Uh, so, you know, just learning that they're going to run out of diesel fuel, yet the supply chain is disrupted. How are they going to keep, how are we going to keep getting diesel fuel to a nuclear power station so it, it can properly um, shut down, maintain itself? Uh, I learned that every nuclear power station is um, pretty much, I think we've got 77 or uh, at least, that are also repositories for nuclear waste because we don't have a national nuclear waste repository location. So they're already licensed to hold it. So not only do they have their own nuclear waste on site, but nuclear waste from other facilities is sent there because mm. they're they're licensed to contain it. The one that, that is near me, um, Sharon Harris Nuclear Plant, I was told has a lot more nuclear waste there than it ever generated. And But the nuclear waste I'm most worried about are the, the spent fuel rods that are in the cooling pools. And and these fuel rods are, are set at a certain distance. There's water pumped through them around them so they can they can cool down enough to where they can eventually be put in to dry cask storage or other kinds of disposal and um, if you don't have electric pumps pumping that water and uh, then that water is going to slowly evaporate and within a month that water is gone if it's not powered and i've got a timeline i'll, I'll share a screen in a sec and um and the, those nuclear rods then are going to start to cook off and the zirconium cladding will ignite and they, they will burn. And uh, you'll have radioactive clouds similar to the Fukushima incident within 55, 60 miles of every uh, nuclear rod pool that dries up. They, you'll have this fallout cloud coming after it. And I thought to me that was one of the scarier things of losing grid power for 30 days plus. Yeah, that's sobering. I did not realize that they are required to utilize, well, not necessarily required, but it's part of their operations to get grid power to continue to operate. That's an interesting yeah. predicament. So if you've only got 10 or even 30 days of fuel there, and, wow. and, and pray that your generators run. Right. Uh, that uh, they don't have, a, the electronics in them are also viable and have withstood the EMP mm. or cyber attack. All right. So you want to go ahead and get into your diagram? Yeah. The, yeah. Let me, uh, do you have the ability to share screen here? I think so. I think I just set it to where you should be able to share now. Okay. So out. for our listeners that are uh, listening and not viewing, then make sure you come to the links in the description below so that you can have access to the video of this as well. Okay, how's that coming through? That looks great, Stephen. Let me move. Okay, go on. Okay, so I just call this the fishbone diagram, and it is in Appendix 3 of our 2016 Powering Through book. And um, I'll just walk you through it. I'll try to do a – get the whole page to show. There we go. Is that better? Yes, sir. Get this out of the way. Okay, so on the left, this is a timeline chart. On the left uh, is the beginning of the event, large-scale grid loss event or black sky event. And uh, these, you know, it looks like kind of like a, a, a fish bones. The, these uh, ribs that are coming out are 
are just notes, and you can see that there's a timeline. Uh, and E plus one E is the event, event plus one day, event plus 10 days, et cetera. So um, after one day, uh, and recall I used to, I've got some experience with um, uh, heavy industry and the, the, the chemistry that they've got to manage. And so you've got, uh, these plants are typically located along uh, waterways because they use the water for cooling. They pump it in, pump it out. And um, in some cases they need barge traffic or whatnot to do business. So they're by our major waterways. Um, and they use high pressures, high, high temperatures, um, or ra very rapidly spinning equipment that has to be regulated uh, with computer con computerized controls. It's no longer manual. <clears throat> and, um, and so they're, they're going to have a sudden stoppage. And again, you know, it could be that their emergency power will not turn on if it's an electromagnetic pulse event. So, you know, instantly black and you've got all this the scenario there that's no longer under control. So they will suffer catastrophic releases. Um, we know we see that from time to time in the news anyway, even when they're, they've got power. Um, and so the, the um, containment dikes around the above ground storage tanks for uh, large volumes of chemistry chemicals uh, are designed to hold one third. Typically, if they're, they're not designed to hold 100% of the storage tank capacity because the design assumption is that help can be on the way. Um, mm. But in this scenario, no help is on the way. So it's possible that they'll be breached. If not right away, then there's no pumps to pump it back and eventually the rainwater will wash it into our uh, offsite. Uh, as well as this stuff will go airborne. Um, up on the top here, uh, by about 12 hours at, at best, you know, we're, I used to live in Raleigh, North Carolina, the capital. Uh, Raleigh's water supply is provided by um, uh, local utility, and they use water towers. These water towers typically have 24 to 48 hours of water pressure under normal usage. But because we're in a hurricane area, people are, they know when the power goes out, fill up your bathtub, fill up your pots and pans so you've got water. And they, that's just what the population does. So when there is a power outage, they know they lose they lose that water pressure because everybody's doing what they ought to do at home. They lose it within 12 hours, if not eight hours. So that utility is, is very focused on getting, getting that water pressure back up, at least for firefighting purposes. But again, if we're talking about, you know, a 30 day plus power outage, um, they probably can't do that. So you're going to be out of public water. If you're in, uh, I think, uh, uh, up in the DC area, their water systems are, pressurized by pumps there's not towers so if you've you lose electricity as soon as, as soon as the residual pressure in the pipeline goes down you've lost water pressure so you're not getting water to flush your toilets put out fires or to drink um, within four days i learned this with that work in north carolina i never never knew that i mean i knew that i knew i'd heard of sewer lift stations before you know when you flush your toilet you've got industrial sewage uh, it doesn't all flow by gravity it's got to be as soon as it goes to a low spot, it's got to be pumped uphill until it can eventually get pumped all the way to the sewer treatment facility, the wastewater treatment facility. So there's no power to pump. So every all that stuff is going to back up. And if you live in a low-lying area, it's going to start coming up through your floor drains, out of your toilet. Um, everybody that's flushing uphill, is it's going to back up in, into you. It's also going to overflow from the uh, manhole covers and these these uh, sewer lines are generally uh, run along uh, 
creeks and other right-of-ways so that it's going to overflow into um, uh, bodies of water that you would want to turn to to get some drinking water since you've got no, no water pressure. Uh, so they'll, they'll become con even more contaminated than they already are. They're, they're not safe to drink today, but they'll become even less safe to drink. I also learned that uh, after four to five days of not pumping, the, all the fiber and the toilet paper and whatnot in the, in the sewer lines settles and it, it solidifies and you cannot, those pumps won't run anymore. They can't push it. So they have to be replaced. So you've only got a, maybe a week before your sewer system is, has got to be rebuilt at least for the pump stations. Uh, so people are going to start running out of the, oops, start running out of their water at home. And, um, and when you drink bad water, you're going to get diarrhea uh, over six, about 60% of our casualties in the civil war here. Um, uh, you know, we, I think we lost uh, 600,000 people in that war and over half of those were not from being shot, not combat related deaths. They were from drinking poor sanitation and drinking bad water. We just didn't understand it then. And, and going backwards in time, that's always been the biggest killer of armies has been drinking bad water and poor sanitation. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, we can start thinking about the effect of bad water on, on the population. Uh, so let's say you've got a water plant that is still running. It's, it's got a local, it's got a, G, a generator, it's got power, or for some reason, the local power company is still up. Um, the, all this water flowing into the rivers that they're using as their sources is going to overwhelm their design capacity. They, they're not going to be able to clean it out. So even though they may be able to maintain water pressure, they're not, it's not going to be drinkable water. Um, so within 12 days, uh, these nuclear power plant waste pools I was talking about, those generators are going to run out of diesel fuel. Now, maybe that we've got longer, maybe they've acted on this, this, but I'd say right now when we did the study, they had about two weeks of fuel. And, you know, if you think about it, people aren't going to go to work if they can't take care of their family. How are they going to get more fuel to this location? And everybody's going to be scrambling for diesel fuel for their generators. I know that was, uh, that's been an issue in it, just in hurricanes, uh, keeping generators running and, and prioritizing fuel. Uh, so um, by 15 days, we're going to start, start to see widespread diarrhea outbreaks. It's just common sense. Um, now what the, the water utility did in this in the area of Raleigh, North Carolina, is they put out a survey after one of the hurricanes. They, they're, you know, one thing I learned is that people that are in the public water business take it very seriously. They're, they're very dedicated. Um, and they were worried that people, if they couldn't maintain potable water, just water pressure, would people take it seriously when they were told to boil the water before they consumed it? And they thought, well, one way to know if people understand good water versus non-potable water is have they been camping because campers understand don't drink the water mm -hmm. uh, or you got to filter it and treat it so they put out a survey and asked the uh, in the metro area of raleigh um, how many people have been camping they thought if you've been camping even in rv in an rv you understand good water and bad water and over 90 percent of the respondents had never been camping a single single day in their life so, so they, they have no idea no idea uh, no experience. Uh, when I was in the Marine Corps um, at sea in the Mediterranean, we pulled into Italy, um, you know, very scenic, and they, they always give you the disease brief before you step off the ship. And they said, um, do, you're going to see people fishing in the canals uh, there, uh, walking in them, and they're 
their their bodies are used to it. They said if they, I remember that the surgeon said if you get three drops of that water on you, you you're you, you're going to need to be quarantined. It's just full of disease that you're not used to. We wow. are so used to we are so used to drinking clean water here that our bodies aren't adjusted to it. Mm-hmm. And so it would be a shock to us. And so that's to my point here on the 15 days, people are going to drink what they can find. They're, we're going to have widespread life-threatening diarrhea outbreaks. If you've ever consumed bad water, I have. I mean, I was, I couldn't even stand yeah. up. It, it just, it's shocking what it does to you. And, and there's not going to be clean water to rehydrate with. Um, I learned um, that grocery store, you know, when you think hurricanes, earthquakes, whatever, you see these pictures, the, the bread and milk are gone in the grocery stores. And grocery stores have, you know, maybe two, three days of supply inside them. But grocery store chains have distribution centers in the major metro areas that have about two weeks of uh, resupply. And, you know, even without power, I guess refrigerated produce would, would, would go bad, but they've got other stuff there. But within two weeks, you know, that that's going to be consumed, um, according to the, the experts that we had on that working group. So we're basically basically going to run out of food in about two weeks and we're already going to be pretty weakened by bad water. And so by 28 days, now we've got the water evaporating out of those, those uh, waste pool, waste rod pools. And uh, these nuclear uh, fuel rods are going to start to catch on, start to ignite and do with, you know, create clouds of uh, fallout within about a 60 mile downwind radius of uh, each location. We've got, you know, many of those around the country. So what are people going to do? Are they going to abandon population centers? It's going to be hard for them to walk. Um, how far can they go? <clears throat> what resources will be available to them? I, I've done a marathon running and ultra marathon running. The most I've run at one time is 50 miles. And even when I, I did train for that for a year, it was super hard. You right. know, and that's where you've got support people handing you things to drink and giving you something to eat so you can keep going. So, if, you know, 50 miles is no big deal with a car, but, you know, where are you really going to go uh, in this situation? So this is, this is really the kind of, a, I don't know if I even call it worst case. I would call this a likely case if we, the, the entire grid collapsed uh, with our current state of readiness in this country. Yeah. As you said, that's very sobering. And I mean, be, working with you, uh, for quite some time now, this has been sobering for me for quite a while. That's why I wanted to get you on and talk about this stuff. Um, let's let's not talk about just the doom and gloom. If what kind of things do you think through this study and your other work, and you know the work we've all been doing together? What do you think people need to be doing to get ready? Great question. Um, I think number one, if there is a black sky event and all the streetlights don't work, stoplights don't work, and you're not home, you need to be able to get home. And then your home needs to be ready to receive you and your household. So you have some level of readiness there. So in order to get home, you know, we, you hear this topic called a bug out bag. This is the opposite of bug out. This is get home. Uh, because if you think back to that timeline I just showed you, where's everybody going to go? I mean, I, I live in I live in a rural location now. Um, you know, my neighbors aren't stockpiling food, and, or, or uh, certainly not enough to share. And you know, how do we produce food today? Just because you can get out away from a metro area doesn't mean that there's going to be sus- sustenance for you. 
Uh, everybody there is in the same boat. They're just, they've got a few days and they're covered they're, They go to the store. Um, so uh, the important thing is to be able to get home, have, you know, the right, right kit at your office or in your car. So you can get maybe home, maybe 50 miles by foot. If you have to, the right shoes, the right clothing, um, it'll probably take you more than one day to get home. So how are you going to spend the night? Uh, so just thinking that stuff through it so that, and then once you get home, you'll need the same categories of, you basically be camping out in your house. You'll be without power. Mm -hmm. So what do you, and I know your time is short here, but, uh, what do you see as the big difference that you could recommend to people that live in, in a rural area like you versus what we're looking at in New York city, for example, because we've been discussing this quite a bit. I, I think if you go back to that timeline chart, you've got to focus on uh, drinkable water. Um, if you need medication, uh, make sure you've got a stockpile of that. Um, and, you know, you can last three days without water and then you're done. Um, if you get life-threatening diarrhea, you won't even make it that long. You can go 30 days without food, which would not be fun. Um, so, you know, think of focus on the fundamentals, uh, have uh, if, you know, it's kind of hard to store a lot of water. And if you live on the 30th floor of a high rise, the, um, so have an ability to render water safe. So if you're going to collect it from a river or some surface water, you know, even if it's just full of geese and ducks, you don't want to drink it. So how, you know, know, know how to make that water safe to drink. And, uh, uh, you know, hygiene, we, we really focused on hygiene during the pandemic. Hygiene really matters. And, um, and, and then I think it's, you know, if you, you can focus on the food supplies as far as dehydrated foods and things like that with long-term shelf storage, uh, they don't take up that much room, uh, compared to fresh produce and canned goods, but, you know, do some thinking and, and, and be ready and, um, and have, uh, have that, those hard conversations with your family and your neighbors so that you're not isolated. But one thing that we're, you know, Craig, as you know, we're working on is we we want people to be able to get back to work wherever they can. And so what's important is that people just don't bunker up. Uh, but we've got to get we've got to make our economy work. We need people to get back to work. We need people in the grocery stores. We need truck drivers. We need people working at the power plant. We need the hospital workers, the EMTs, the sheriffs. We need to be able to conduct financial transactions. So ideally, uh, enough of us are uh, feel safe enough at home that they go to work and that's the long-term goal is mm -hmm. that um, we build some societal resilience uh, so that we we can get back to work and that we have some infrastructure resilience that allows those people to conduct business and do do what needs to be done for our society to function well i don't want to say this has been great because it's i guess sobering but it's been invaluable for you to share your experience and your, your, uh, man, all the work you've done. This has been fantastic for sharing with our folks. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Well, I appreciate the work you do. You've been a huge accelerator to our, our focus on household readiness. And, uh, so thank Go team. you, Craig. Go team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is one of those things that cannot be conquered by one or two people. It's going to take a bunch of us and I'm glad I'm, I'm available to be able to help and I, I couldn't do it without you folks. So I appreciate you guys. Very grateful. Yep. Well, we'll go ahead and cut it off now. Cause I know you got to go. You got another meeting. I appreciate your time, Steve. It's been fantastic. And uh, I'm sure we'll be, 
touching base with you again. And we'll have everybody listening in and watching. We'll have links for everything that Stephen has mentioned today that he shared so that you can view it if you're listening on the podcast and, and we'll take it from there. So thanks for listening in and watching. And as we do at Nature Blind School, come on, join in. Let's learn together. Thank you, Craig. And one, one plug I'd like to put in. Yes, please. The, um, the Grid Down Power Up movie, just Google that. Grid Down Power Up. I'm going to have uh, a link does, for that in here too. It, it does a great job explaining the, the, the threat risk um, you know, far better than I can with my you know slides and, and my voice. So, yeah, good stuff. And I'll have a link for that, everybody. Thanks for bringing that up, Steve. It's good stuff. Okay. So, we'll talk to you soon, everybody. Come on, join in. Let's learn together. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blind School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.